0: Friday, May 20th, 2011, the day before the uh, big rapture failed to come up, yeah, this is not going to be the last edition of Fighting for the Faith, despite what Harold Camping says. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. All right, so doing my program prep today... all over the news. It's been, well, it's been all over the news all week. But it's uh, it, you can tell it's building towards a crescendo. Everybody be talking about Harold Camping and uh, the prediction of the uh, the rapture tomorrow. Uh, the problem that I'm running into is is that much of the media coverage that I'm seeing here in Indianapolis isn't doing any. Well, let's just say they're not making any effort to distinguish like mainstream Christian thought from uh, the Campingites. And some of the stories that I've been seeing on the news, hearing on the radio, even seeing in the newspapers, um, all basically paint Harold uh, Camping as a mainstream Christian, and they're covering the story by saying that Christians are predicting the rapture for May 21st. So uh, you can kind of see what's happening as a result of that. We're, we're, we're heading towards a, a problem. And the problem that we're heading towards is this, and that is, is that there's going to be a lot of folks who, you know, they don't care to take any time to understand the different types of uh, nuanced theology and teachers and stuff like that in Christianity. As a result of it, not only are you going to need to be there for to help pick up the pieces for your friends and family who may have been caught up in this, uh, in this whole camping thing, but the other thing you're going to need to uh, do is um, do the job of uh, putting some distance between yourself and the campingites in the eyes of non-believers. And um, you know, you understand what I'm saying. I, I received an email. In fact, I received an email uh, today. In fact, let me just play the email music. And today's going to be a different program. <laughs> My brain is like <sighs> ah, frustrated. <laughs> Now I got an email from a gentleman by the name of Corey, and Corey emails me from Thailand. And uh, from the from the sounds of his email, it sounds like Corey is actually doing some missions work out there in Thailand, and. Uh, The whole Harold camping thing is creating challenges for uh, him out on the mission field. Listen to this. Chris, I just wanted to let you know that I was uh, recently in Pattaya, Thailand, helping out with a Christ outreach there. And what I saw there appalled me. It it wasn't the fact that the city is full of bars and Thai women trying to sell themselves – that part saddens me and these people need Christ in their lives. Yeah, they need they truly do need Christ. He says what sickened me the most was all of the advertising I saw for May twenty-first, twenty eleven. The signs were written in both Thai and English. They said that the Bible says for certain that the world will end on May twenty-first, twenty eleven. I've been a missionary here for over three years, and now I know that this will hurt uh missions here. Uh, come May 22nd, Thai people don't know enough about Christianity and the Bible to know that this is just a lie. They will think it's really from the Bible and that this is what Christians really believe. I, I have to admit, I felt angry when I saw this. My guess is that Thailand isn't the only country where this is happening. Many countries have little clue as to what Christians really believe, and when people see things like this, It'll only drive them away from Christ, especially come may twenty second pray for thailand and the and the and the Thai people Thanks you know Corey, I'm seeing the same thing here in the states, and um you know uh one of the thing you know was it last week we i did my my program on satanic deception you know i i, I just see i i see Harold camping basically being used as a tool of the devil and everyone's you know it, it, there's not a lot of christians who actually believe uh Harold Camping I, I recently saw a survey uh that was published uh, the uh, press release that came across uh, our our news here at uh, the pyre christian radio state uh, uh studio and uh, it that said that 98% of uh, self-identifying christians do not believe that the rapture is going to be on may 21st the thing is is that this story has legs and it's it's all over the world, and like you're pointing out, what's going on in Thailand is is also I'm seeing a similar thing here, and that is is that the news media is not really taking great effort to distinguish the campingites as a fringe kook group, and they're covering the story as Christians are predicting the rapture for May twenty first, twenty eleven. So when it doesn't happen, um, collectively as the body of Christ, we are going to get a black eye. And, uh, you know, my concern is is that, you know, this is only going to f- worsen things as we uh, try to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So uh, th- this is something else that we have got to be aware of is that there's going to be a lot of folks who are going to basically say, oh, you're a Christian. Well, you're an idiot. Uh, Jesus didn't come back on May 21st. And you're, you're going to have to say, yeah, I was one of those people telling everybody that he's a kook. Yeah, you got to understand. You know, so, yeah, we're, we're going to have to have an apologetic to uh, the general population that basically says, uh, well, we got to throw camping under the bus, is best bus best of putting it. Now, I, I've been, you know, I've made sure I have a paper trail. <laughs> I have a Twitter feed paper to- uh, trail and Facebook update status paper trail and my radio, uh, you know, archives as proof that I've been warning people that camping is a false prophet and his uh, prediction is going to come, you know, crumbling down uh, on May twenty second, and we need to be there to help pick up the pieces. But also understand that this is going to create some challenges uh, for the future, as uh, as you know, as we you know try to credibly proclaim Jesus Christ as uh, God in human flesh the Messiah who's coming to judge the world who died on the cross for our sins and is calling all human beings to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and is offering them a full and complete pardon by Christ's shed blood on the cross. Uh, unfortunately, this this story is going to uh, hurt missions here and abroad, and from Corey's email, uh, it, it sounds like uh, he, he's seeing the same thing that I'm seeing here and having the same concerns, so... Yeah. Anyway, so that's the one thing that's on my mind and I don't I I I'll be blunt. I don't feel like reading another story about camping at this point. Um I feel like I've done the story to death. Um I, I probably will be uh <laughs> taking photographs of uh of clothes that I lay around the yard and things like that just to <laughs> be goofy tomorrow, but that that oh man. Anyway, so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on the rest of the program here today. Um, there's a few things I want to do. I, if you listen to yesterday's program and the sermon review in particular, um, that sermon really, really got me, got under my skin. I, I was, I was angry when I got off the air yesterday. I, co- I was incensed. I was incensed by what I heard. In fact. Uh, that Robert Morris sermon that was preached at New Spring was every bit, every bit as horrid and atrocious as uh, Tetzel trying to sell indulgences uh, during the, you know, the time pro- just prior to the Reformation. It, it's every bit as insulting, every bit as bad. That I mean, I was so angry after hearing that sermon and, and reviewing it that. Uh, that I mean, it, it it rises to the level of Luther's anger towards Tetzel. I mean, this is ridiculous. We have people who who are making merchandise of uh, of Christians by twisting God's word the way that, that you know. In, in, oh, uh, unbelievable! If you haven't heard that sermon review, I, I know that some of you listeners out there that the, that my sermon reviews are not your cup of tea. Um, may I make a request? Go back and listen to yesterday's sermon review yeah yesterday's program being may 19th 2011 and um yeah you 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 just yes yeah, the principle of multiplication is uh, what it was called so yeah take a listen to it because today's program kind of springboards off of that and uh, what i'm going to do today it's a little bit different uh, and so um I've got, got a threefold agenda here, and now, now that I've read the email, it, you know we've got three things left that I want to do on the program today. One of my uh, listeners, uh, Beth Ritzman, whom I've met, um, she sent me uh, a um, sermon that she thought would be the uh, perfect antidote or juxtaposition to the sermon that we heard yesterday, and it's uh, preached by da- uh, Pastor David Peterson, uh, from, uh, he's a pastor there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, that's one of the things I'm going to do today. I'm going to I'm going to play that sermon. The other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read a a, a short sermon by uh, Pastor William Swirla, uh, t- uh, preaching from the uh, the Gospel of John uh, text that uh, discusses uh, you know the feeding of the five thousand to show you to demonstrate to you what a good sermon on. That on a gospel text that talks about the feeding of, of of the multitudes that Jesus did that focuses in on Christ and rather than turn it into a sermon about tithing, which it was, yeah, that text is not about tithing at all. And then after that, I'm going to actually play a um I'm going to play a lecture, and the lecture is from Carl Truman. A, 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 Seems like I've played a lot of him lately. But the name of this lecture by Carl Truman from Westminster Theological Seminary is entitled The Prophetic Word, What Preaching Is and Is Not. Is and is not. So really the agenda for today, aside from the email that I just read, is is to kind of give an antidote, an antidote, an antidote, a, a counterpoint, an antidote, a, a rebuttal, a juxtaposition to the atrocious thing, the crime that we heard committed, uh, during yesterday's sermon review, so that's how we're going to spend the the program today. So make yourself comfortable, settle in, and uh, let's get started. I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin first by reading a sermon uh, that I don't have audio available for it. All I have is the long form, uh, uh, hand, uh, you know, typed out version of it uh, that was preached by uh, a sermon preached by Pastor William Swirla back on August 14th of 2006. The name of the sermon is Borrowed Bread and Fish. And I, I want you to hear, uh, not, not that I'm a good preacher, I, I don't claim to be a preacher, um, um, and I don't play one on, uh, on the radio, but anyway, uh, the point is, is that I want you to hear a sermon that, takes, uh, that, that handles uh, these texts that deal with Jesus' feeding of the multitudes and handles it correctly and doesn't turn it into something that it's not. Yeah, these stories aren't—in fact, the, the, when Jesus multiplies bread and fishes, this is not about tithing. And anybody who would dare to tell you this is about tithing is up to no good. They don't even know how to handle God's Word, and they probably shouldn't be uh, allowed to stand behind a pulpit and to preach to anybody. Uh, at least uh, that's <clears throat> my strong opinion at this point. But uh, So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that first, and then we'll take a break. We'll listen to the good counter sermon, which talks about salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and then we'll listen to Carl Truman's fantastic lecture. So that's what we're gonna we're gonna do, spending the day today. Um uh, and then, you know, Monday we'll figure out where to go with the with the cleanup operation that's gonna be done as a result of Harold Camping's rapture fail. Anyway, so with that, let's dive into the program. Proper I don't have any music for this. So here is the sermon preached by um Pastor William Swirla, I'm going to read it, Borrowed Bread and Fish. The text, by the way, the text for this particular sermon is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, which I'm going to read first before we get started. And here's the text. It says, And after this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples now the passover the feast of the jews was at hand and lifting up his eyes then the and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him Jesus said to Philip where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat and he said this to test him for he knew for he himself knew what he would do philip answered well 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little and one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was in the gra- there was grass in that place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and um, when he had given thanks... He distributed them to those who were seated, so that all the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, "'Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost.' So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, "'This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world,' perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king.' Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, this is the gospel text. It forms the basis of this sermon. I now begin. In the name of Jesus. Bartled bread and fish are a feast in the hands of Jesus. John writes, Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. The after this refers to Jesus' healing of the man at the pool of Bethsaida, where with a word he told a paralyzed man to get up, and he did. Now, it was a Sabbath, and so the religious confront Jesus. My father is always at work to this very day, Jesus told them, and I too am working. He said he was the Son of God, and he had the works to prove it. The confrontation ends with a question to those who would follow Moses. If if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? On this question, John hangs the next thing. This morning's gospel. Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee to the far shore, and a great crowd of people follow after him. They had seen the miracles, how Jesus healed the sick. They wanted more. Faith in miracles always needs another miracle to keep it going. You can pack a stadium full of people that way. Jesus goes up to a mountainside with his disciples. Watch when Jesus goes up to a mountain. Sermon on the Mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Calvary, God's holy mountain. In our reading from Exodus, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel saw God and they ate and drank and were not destroyed. Keep that one running in the background of your mind. Jesus sees the mob coming toward them, and he tests one of his disciples. Philip, where are we going to buy bread for all of these people? He says with his messianic tongue firmly planted in his messianic cheek. He knew what he was going to do. He wanted to hear what Philip would say. Philip fails the test. He thinks only in terms of dollars and cents and work. Well, 200 denarii, the, the wages of eight months, work would not be enough. Philip can see only so far as his own work. Jesus has nothing whatever to do with it. And so we, in our practicalities, in our Monday through Saturday Christianity, that has little, if anything, to do with Jesus. He's for Sunday, when we have the time. The rest of the week is for work. He can heal the sick on occasion, but feeding a mob of 5,000 hungry people, well, that's another matter. Andrew has his solution. He co-ops a little boy, bringing lunch home to his mother. Five little cakes of barley and two dried fish. How far can these go among so many, Andrew wonders. He fails the test, too. Borrowed bread and fish in the hands of Jesus go as far as needed and even more. He has them sit down. John, who was there himself, notes that there was much green grass. Why the grass? Perhaps John was thinking about Psalm 23, the psalm of the sheep boasting of his good shepherd, "'He maketh me to lie down in green pastures.'" Good Shepherd Jesus is there to feed his flock, to prepare a table for them in the presence of their enemies. Jesus takes the borrowed bread into his own hands, gives thanks, breaks it up, and distributes it. Sound familiar? It should. It happens every Sunday here in church. What he did with borrowed bread there, he does here for us and so much more. Instead of multiplying it, he amplifies it, gives it more than we ordinarily receive with bread. His body sacrificed on Calvary for your sins. He takes the bread and begins to distribute it. And the bread keeps on coming and coming. Bread in abundance, like manna raining down from heaven. He does the same with the fish. In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by the devil to turn stones into bread to feed himself. Jesus refused. To serve himself was not why he came. And to destroy one thing to make another is not the way of God. He made the stones and he made the bread. He loves them both, and he will not destroy one for the other. In feeding the 5,000, Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish. That's God's way. The rabbi said that when Messiah came, he would feed his people with bread from heaven. That's the sign of this miracle. What this miracle is intended to show. The age of Messiah had come. The Son of God in the flesh had come, bread in abundance, more bread than they could possibly eat, a perfect 12 baskets full of leftover doggy bags for the disciples, and fish too. At the Sabbath meal, you always ate some fish in Jesus' day. That's how we later got fish on Fridays, by the way. It was said that when the Messiah came, the people of God would feast on the flesh of Leviathan, symbolized by a great fish. Think of Jonah here. What a day it was, the Lord on a mountain, green grass, 5,000 eating bread and fish with God to their contentment, and 12 baskets full of leftovers. The people said, this is the prophet who is come into the world. They got that part right. So we'll give them a B minus on that jesus was indeed the one of whom moses wrote in deuteronomy chapter 18 the lord your god will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers jesus is that prophet and more that part the people got right the next part they got terribly wrong they wanted to make jesus a king by force and so jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself if you want to co opt jesus for your own cause if you want to call the shots with jesus You will do it alone. Jesus will have nothing to do with it. He knew what they had in mind for him. When they heard prophet or messiah, they were thinking revolution and armed revolt against Rome. They were thinking a Davidic king sitting on the throne of Israel. They were thinking like so many deluded people think, that God would restore the nation of Israel to its former greatness, establish the throne in Jerusalem, and reign over the world through his chosen messiah and they were willing to push the agenda along if necessary, make Jesus king by force, take up swords and clubs, and storm the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was on their minds, and he wanted no part of their plots. The people wanted a bread king. We do too. On the promise of a chicken-in-every-pot, universal health care, the end-of-world hunger and poverty, peace in the world, we would put most anyone in power, including even the devil, were he a candidate. Think of all that could have been accomplished by putting Jesus into temporal power. The end of hunger in the world, bread for everyone, the end of disease, no health care crisis, no worries about AIDS or bird flu or whatever pestilence makes the headlines. Global warming, no problem when the Son of God is in charge. War in the Middle East, the Prince of Peace can settle that. We expect that of our religions, too. We expect a solution to our problems, a quick fix to our hungers, fulfillment of our needs, a bandage for broken marriages, a chastity belt for our kids, chicken soup for our souls. That's what we expect from God. And there are plenty of religious hucksters out there peddling you, the snake oil of health, wealth, and prosperity in the name of Jesus. And when we don't find them we move on to other congregations and other religions and other gods. The sign of bread and fish was a stepping stone to yet greater things. Jesus was indeed a king, but not the bread king that the people wanted, a beggar king. Riding atop a borrowed donkey, wearing a borrowed purple robe, a crown of thorns, bearing your sin in his body on the cross, behold, your king in Hebrew— Latin and Greek, nailed to the cross above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's how it is when the Lord is King. What Jesus offers is not fast food, not a quick end to your hunger, nor a religious pill to pop when you're feeling bad. He offers you a bread that you can have from no one else but Jesus the bread of his body broken for you in your brokenness, his flesh offered up for the life of the world. He offers you a cup of wine that you can have from no one else but Jesus, the wine of his life's blood poured out for you, cleansing you from all of your sins. Borrowed bread and wine are a feast of salvation in the hands of Jesus. When you leave here this morning, what what will you say to each other? What will you remember? What will you think about on the way home? The hymns were hard, the church was stuffy, the organist dropped a couple of notes. Pastor didn't bring his A-game this morning. Try this. We ate and drank with God on his holy mountain, and he did not lift up his hand to destroy us. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Monty Python's Flying Circus Church My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my 8-week program, you're gonna learn these things. First off, in Rex Rexquando, we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're gonna learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off, my students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here
0: at Guts Church. I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book. It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in your face, uncompromising, and and pastoral these sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay level bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading you can get your copy of the sufferings of jesus christ for sinners a couple of ways one visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the join our crew button and join our crew anytime between now and the end of may of 2011 and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book of course if you'd like to pay for it without joining our crew, you can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your, in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. All right, we're back. Warning, any pastor who would tell you that Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 is about tithing is a huckster. He's selling you something. He's making merchandise of you. Need to remind you all, fighting for the faith is listener-supported radio. That, that's right. We, it's not an overstatement. It, it's just the flat-out truth. We totally depend upon you guys in order to pay our bills. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, Listen, it's it, it. I it can't. I can't state it enough, and I can't state it strongly enough. We definitely need your help. Uh, we, you know, we we're, we're we're not on track to uh, meet my stated goal of 350 new members of our crew by the end of the month, and I know that many of you are like far behind, and that you know here it is, it's probably already June 1st, and and you're just getting to uh, a a a program like you know today's program where I'm mentioning this, and you're going, oh wow, I didn't even know. <laughs> That's okay. That's all right. Yeah. Better late than never is the way I look at it. Uh, so here's the deal: we're not meeting our budget. We, in order to meet our budget month after month, we have to we have to add, uh, you know, to guarantee it, we have to add 350 new uh, subscribers, uh, crew members uh, to our, our our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Now, in the meantime, while we're ramping up, okay listen if you're not a member of our crew, go join now that 's all I can say it's only six dollars ninety five cents a month it's not a huge amount of money um, but it means a lot to us because uh you know again that 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 ensures that we're making budget every month so we can pay our, all of our bills and uh and when you join i'll send you a i'll send you a link to download our latest ebook and the other thing is is if you're a member of our crew, then you also have the ability you're entitled to purchase our limited edition. Uh, T-shirt that we've uh, recently made available. We're doing what's called the Pirate Christian Radio uh, T-shirt bake sale, and uh, if you go to piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale, uh, when you get there, you'll see a link that if you're a crew member, you can go, you can actually purchase a limited edition T-shirt that I designed. Will be, I'm doing the silk screening on these things, and uh, and I'll sign the uh, back of it, so it's an autographed uh you know copy of this thing, and you can see the design by visiting our website and you know so you can get it at a discount if you don't if you're not a member of the crew of the crew, you can still purchase it at the bake sale website and uh and so you know and and <laughs> yes I'm doing the silk screening on my Udo. do so he, <laughs> it's just one of those things it's a limited edition it's a because uh, <laughs> I don't want to do you doing for a living but anyway, no, it really does help us because uh we're doing that so that we can make budget. So visit our website, join our crew, buy a t-shirt, um, or or you can make a contribution online, a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, moving along here, I'm not going to play the, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly um, music for this segment, that's... Yeah, It's kind of not why I'm doing what I'm doing on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. But this next sermon uh, comes to us uh, from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor David Peterson, and Beth Ritzman is the one who uh, recommended this sermon. And I'm playing this as also a counter to what we heard yesterday. Uh, yesterday, we heard uh, Robert... Uh, Somebody, I, I, I got an email from uh, Ruby Tuesday um, yeah, this morning, and Ruby Tuesday told me that uh, you know she she refers to him no, no longer as Robert Morris, but as Robert Morlize. Anyway, uh, Robert Morlize had the audacity to tell us that our our finances are under the umbrella of a curse unless we agree to be obedient and tithe, And the Bible says nothing of the sort. And I pointed out that actually the scriptures say that you're under a curse if you're trying to be justified by keeping the law. Uh, that just read Galatians, if you're not familiar with that section. So, anyway, uh, Beth Ritzman recommended this uh, this sermon as a counterpoint, uh, a juxtaposition to what we heard yesterday. And this is uh, uh, Pastor David Peterson, who is uh, a Lutheran pastor up there in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, here we go. Just just listen in. This is all this is all law and gospel done correctly. And uh, which I think is also a good antidote to what we heard yesterday. Here we go.
2: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Here is what St. Paul received from Moses and from Peter. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. If you believe this gospel, if you stand upon it, you are saved. It is trust in what Paul both received and delivered that is the dividing line between humanity. It defines, either positively or negatively, all people. It separates and divides Cain from Abel, Job from his friends, Abraham from Abimelech, Isaac from Ishmael, Jacob from Esau, Joseph from Potiphar, David from Saul, Mordecai from Haman, Daniel from Belshazzar, Joseph from Herod, the beggar Lazarus from the rich man, and finally, the publican from the Pharisee in the temple. What defines men is not whether they are good or bad, but whether or not they believe in Jesus Christ. The Pharisees' prayer was not as bad as it sounds at first. If you take a trip to Riley Children's Hospital or the burn unit at St. Joe, you will say the same prayer, or at least you should. You should thank God that you have been spared so much, that God has been so good to you that you are not like the men starving in Ethiopia or the women who are veiled and scared in Saudi Arabia or the homeless addicts on the streets of New York. God has given you burdens, and yet they are easy and light because he bears the weight. You have your sorrows. You have the crosses that God gives. For he chastises his sons and keeps them dependent, ever close to him, in suffering. He teaches them to pray. But he always carries the weight. Because, as Paul said, he died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. And that makes all of the difference. By this grace, we are saved. So thank God that we are not like those who mourn without hope. Thank God that we live by this grace and mercy. Thank God that we know that death is not the last word and that we bask in the grace that God gives freely and feast upon his body and blood. That he has brought us here through the waters of holy baptism and has spared us So much misery that we do not pay for our sins, that we have been found by his mercy, that we belong to a family, and that we know joy in the midst of sadness. The problem with the Pharisee wasn't exactly what he said. It was his heart. He said thanks to God, but he thought it was his own doing, He thought that his fasting and his tithing had spared him, that he deserved a reward. He was impressed by the gifts that he brought, and he thought that his prosperity and abilities were proof that God loved him, or even that they were motivation for God to love him. It was, however, particularly stupid of him to think that giving God his own things "...would impress God. For God did not benefit from this man's fasting or from his tithes. God did not eat the food that he did not eat, nor spend the money that he brought. It is dangerously arrogant to be impressed with ourselves and what we give or what we do for the church. Pride is a deadly sin and precedes the fall." Can you imagine being so vain as to think that God should be impressed that you came to church today? As though God needed you here. You were doing Him some great favor with your presence. That your praise would add to His glory or make Him bigger or better. Or that without you, He would be lacking. Imagine the pride that would say, well, I went to church Sunday. So the rest of the week is mine to spend however I please. If we dare to look into our checkbooks, we will probably find that no accountant would think that the church was our priority. The accountant would see where our money goes, into the house for clothing and shoes, for cars, entertainment, for food, for savings, for a rainy day much of it wasted away on frivolous things. He would find all kinds of things that we had bought and paid for for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our future, even for our past debts. But what would be the percentage he'd find for the mission of the church? Would he really be that impressed, or would he think on the basis of this, that the church and its mission were a priority in your life. Figure up the percentage, and it doesn't look very good. Is it even enough to deduct off of your income taxes, or is it not worth keeping track of, like the money you spend on door-to-door candy sales? The widow gave all that she had and thought nothing of it. She was glad to do it. The rich man gave what was to him a meaningless trifle amount and demanded a plaque in his honor, recognition and praise from men. Why is it that the less we give, the prouder we feel, or the more significant we think we are? That was the case with the evil Pharisee in the temple. He had brought in a handful of weeds, picked up off of the sidewalk on the way in and expected a reward. Not so the tax collector. He was humble. He was even afraid. He brought nothing. He had lived a vile life. He had betrayed and even abused his own people. He had no good works. He had no offering. He simply threw himself on God's mercy. But he went home justified, without fasting, without tithes, without offerings, without good works. He went home justified, forgiven, reconciled to the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ that he could not offer, but which was offered for him. He had done nothing brought nothing, paid nothing. He wasn't in the habit even of praying, but he got everything for free. After that, I imagine that he probably did bring in some weeds of his own. It probably looked on the outside exactly like those of the Pharisees. But those weeds... Offered in faith without thought of their reward were like dandelions from a child to his mother. And the mother receives them with happiness and gratitude and displays them with honor while diamonds and roses are thrown out with the trash. For this is the life lived in grace. By grace we offer our praise, say our thanks, and give our gifts in freedom and in love as those who were empty but are filled who were dead but are now alive as those who were alone but are now set into a family given a father a brother and a name as those who do not have to and now it is justified by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that all of your works and even your monetary gifts and even bunches of weeds now please God. No matter how big or small they are, how frequent or infrequent, they please God because you please God. Because the Son has pleased God for you. All of it is washed and cleansed by grace. You are free to love and to give and to never count the cost or worry about the consequences, exactly like the widow who gave all that she had and didn't worry or think anything of it. And if you don't want to give, if you'd rather just keep your money for yourself or for some other thing, that's fine. Go ahead. God does not need it. And no mother ever complained or was disappointed or upset with her children because they walked through a dandelion patch and didn't bother to pick any of them for her. Just the same, all mothers receive such gifts with thanksgiving and are glad to have them. So you are free to give or to not to give, to keep or to give it away. You are free and you are loved. Because what you bring or what you do doesn't really matter in the sense of making God love you. Like, again, unto your mothers. For your mother, the church, also has been given a charge to feed you. And even as your earthly mothers fed you, even when you were naughty, even when you forgot to bring dandelions and the like, Even as your earthly mothers took care of you and loved you, no matter how you were behaving, so also the church will feed you and nourish you always for free. And like unto your earthly mothers, she will rarely cut out dessert simply because you don't deserve it. The freedom of the gospel is the freedom of being forgiven. And not having to do anything. Because all of it has been done for you. And knowing now, that whatsoever you choose to do in this freedom, God will bless and be pleased with for the sake of His Son. In this way, God continues to provide. To give you food to eat and drink to drink, his body and his blood for your nourishment and strength, your comfort and joy out of his perfect, ever-giving love, to both justify and sanctify you. And thus, do you go home to your house today justified and loved by God. In Jesus' name.
0: Amen. All right. So that was the exact biblical gospel counterpoint to the miserable thing that was supposedly a sermon that we heard yesterday. And uh, if it <laughs> sounds like I'm uh, kind of on a roll, on a terror, well, I am. I, th- that sermon was an atrocity. Like I said, it was a crime. It was a crime every bit as awful as Tetzel's Selling of indulgences. That's how bad it was. All right. What I'm going to do right now is we're going to pause, take our second break, and when we come back, we're going to listen again to Carl Truman, and he's going to be speaking about the prophetic word, what preaching is, and what it is not. I think this will help round out our rebuttal to that awful sermon that we heard yesterday. So, uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address: talkback at fighting for the faith. Dot com, Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash christian, Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: This is the air, I breathe. This is the air, I breathe. I've had enough Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: I'm excited to announce the arrival of our latest book... It's entitled The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, a series of sermons delivered by Martin Luther, edited by, well, me, Chris Rosebro. This collection of sermons defines what it means to be Christ-centered and cross-focused. They masterfully deliver both law and gospel so that your sins are brought to light and Christ's sufferings and blood are placarded in order to bring you to repentance and the comforting assurance of God's love, mercy, and forgiveness. Luther's style in these sermons is bold, in your face, uncompromising, and and pastoral. These sermons are expository in their delivery and read like a lay-level Bible commentary and are perfect for both devotional as well as theological reading. You can get your copy of The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners a couple of ways. One, visit fightingforthefaith.com, click on the Join Our Crew button, and join our crew anytime between now and the end of May of 2011, and you'll receive an email giving you instructions on how you can download your copy of this wonderful little book. Of course, if you'd like to Pay for it without joining our crew. You can do so by visiting piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. That's piratechristianradio.com forward slash suffering. You'll see a couple of links whereby you can purchase it, download it, and begin reading it immediately. This is not a book that you're going to want to miss, and this is not the kind of book that sits idly on your in your library. This is one that you're going to definitely want to read over and again. It's that good. So what are you waiting for? Get your copy today. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. A little bit of a different program today. It's our uh, kind of a rebuttal program. (laughs) You know, I I hear a lot of really bad preaching, Um, you know, more than you do because, uh, you know, I have to screen programs uh, and uh, screen sermons uh, before I review them. And I I listen about three or four before I decide on one that's going to make it on the air, but that was horrible yesterday. Anyway, um no uh, no music here. We're not going to do the good the bad the ugly. Yeah. So anyway, th- what the point I'm making is is that uh despite the fact that I hear a lot of really bad preaching, yesterday was it just struck a chord with me that sent me. It it sent me. It the, the, oh, just absolutely sent me so uh yeah this is this is part detox on my part okay next thing we're gonna do on today's edition of fighting for the faith last thing for the day and uh, what we're gonna be listening to is another lecture by Carl Truman I am rapidly um, coming to deeply respect uh, this man and uh, this is the name of this lecture is entitled the prophetic word what preaching is and is not and I think this would be uh one that uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be referring back to you know, in the years to come as, as, a, as, a, as one to point people to that they need to listen to this. So uh, without any further ado, here is Carl Truman, The Prophetic Word, What Preaching Is and Is Not.
3: Well, it's a great pleasure to be back at Desert Springs Church. I think this is my third visit. Uh, I have fond memories of the first two, so thanks very much for inviting me back and thanks for the kind words of introduction. Uh, my topic tonight is uh, the prophetic word, what preaching is and is not. And it's a subject that's dear to my heart on two levels. One, I'm uh, ordained as a preacher and I have the, the title of teacher at my local church, so preaching is something that is of concern to me personally personally. Uh, And it's also of concern to me as the the academic dean at Westminster, because Westminster exists as a seminary primarily to train men for the preaching ministry. So it is a concern that preaching uh, and the training of preaching should be a high priority. And there's a sense in which that uh, Reformed and Evangelical seminaries today probably do as good a job as they have ever done of teaching students exegetical and homiletical skills, which are the basic building blocks of good preaching. There are probably as many, if not more, fine commentaries available in English today than in any other period of the church's history. There's a wealth of books on preaching. There's podcast access to sermons, which would have been dreamed, undreamed of even ten years ago. So there can be no excuse for not learning from the world of preachers, emulating the strengths of the best, and avoiding the mistakes of the worst. And yet still, it seems to me, preaching, good preaching, seems very hard to find. Part of the reason for this, I think, uh, has been analysed very effectively recently by a man called T. David Gordon in a book called Why Johnny Can't Preach. And if you've ever read uh, T. David Gordon, you'll understand this next comment. I say his arguments, while no doubt overstated at points, certainly have merit and point to wider cultural challenges facing both preachers and teachers. One of the major burdens of T. David Gordon is that the culture we live in, in terms of its emphasis upon soundbites, upon the visual, upon television, internet, has really created an environment where the, the basic cultural skills that would lead somebody to be a good preacher are absent. And one might add, uh, the basic cultural skills that would make one a good listening a listener, to preaching are absent. And what I want to talk about tonight, of course, as I talk about preaching, I'm not just talking to preachers, I'm also talking to those who listen to preachers as well. So it applies, David Gordon's critique, if you like, applies to all. But I want to argue this evening that there may also be a theological reason which is part of the explanation for the poverty of good preaching Today. But before I turn to that, I want to give two anecdotes from my own recent experience. <clears throat> and the first, I was at a theological conference in the UK, so it was a small one. I didn't feel guilty about being there. Uh, and one of the meetings there was billed as being a worship service. And just before the preacher entered the pulpit, he was introduced by the conference organizer as someone who was about to, quote, explain the Bible to us, end quotes. I hate that. If anything, you know, I don't want somebody to get up into the pulpit and explain the Bible to me. I want them to preach. There is no hint of proclamation in the notion of explanation. In the second, I was myself the preacher. And I looked, of course, at the order of service to see when I was meant to step up and, uh, and preach the word. And I noticed it was meant to be uh, after the pastoral prayer. So as the pastoral prayer concluded, I started to rise from my seat Only to hear the following from the person leading the service. Okay, we'll take a break there. Go and fill your coffee cups and we'll reconvene in five minutes for the Bible reading. End quotes. If there's anything I hate more than hearing the Bible is about to be explained, it's probably that people should go off and fill their coffee mugs uh, before the (laughs) preaching. Thankfully, in the first scenario, the preacher did not explain the Bible. He actually preached. He proclaimed God's word. And then in the second, although my rhythm was somewhat broken, I managed to do, to, to recover and do what was probably a half-decent job of proclaiming the word. Uh, the advantage, I think, of doing a fair amount of student work in my younger days uh, means that there's almost nothing that can shock me in church anymore, and I can put up with almost anything before I preach, providing it is not happening in my own church Every Sunday, I remember preaching at one church where just before I got to preach, the man said, "Oh, we have to have—we're having a liturgical dance before the sermon." Um, if there's something worse than coffee before a sermon, it has to be liturgical dance. But I handle it uh, relatively adequately. But both incidents underline for me one of the major problems with contemporary preaching—something which accounts not only for debates about whether preaching is still necessary but also, I think, for it's often poor quality, even in churches which should know better. Preaching is not simply explaining the Bible. It is proclaiming the Word of God. And the failure to understand what the task is theologically will inevitably undermine the way it is practiced. If the preacher thinks he is merely explaining the Bible, he will be incapable of distinguishing what he does in the pulpit from what he might do in a lecture theatre where application and exhortation are generally absent. And if he thinks he is merely facilitating a discussion, he will lack the confrontational authority that comes with a thus says the Lord. The church, and especially her preachers, but also her listeners, need to understand the importance of both the theology of proclamation and of the proclamation of theology. Preaching, of course, was one of the hallmarks of of the Reformation. That's not to say there was no preaching in the Middle Ages. Bernard of Clairvaux, or as you would say, I think Bernard of Clairvaux, preached in such a way as to inspire a crusade. One does not inspire a crusade to the Holy Land by preaching, unless one has both remarkable gifts in this area, and lives at a time where preachers are significant. To stress the unique importance of preaching in the Reformation, is not to deny its significance in earlier times. It is, however, to highlight the fact that preaching came to be a central priority in the Reformation in a way that it had not been during the medieval period. This was because the Reformers saw preaching as the principal means by which God made himself savingly present in the church in a manner that made salvation a reality. I quote now, chapter 18 of the Scots Confession. The chapter entitled, The Notes or the Marks by which the true church is discerned from the false and who shall be judge of doctrine. This is what the, the Scots Confession says. The notes of the true Kirk. Great word for church, that Kirk. Therefore, we believe, confess and avow to be, first, the true preaching of the word of God in which God has revealed himself to us, as the writings of the prophets and apostles declare. Secondly, the right administration of the sacraments of Christ Jesus, to which must be joined the word and promise of God to seal and confirm them in our hearts. And lastly, ecclesiastical discipline, uprightly ministered as God's word prescribes, whereby vice is repressed and virtue nourished. End quotation. Notice preaching is the first mark and it's also the most important as both the sacraments and discipline, we might say pastoral care, discipline has such negative connotations for us, uh, both the sacraments and pastoral care are dependent upon it. The implication of course is that preaching is not mere transmission of information. Were it so, it could be adequately achieved by reading the communal setting and the proclamation of the word are critical to the reformers as these provide the context and the cause for the very creation of the church. Nowhere is this importance made more clear than in the very first chapter of the second Helvetic Confession. Heinrich Bullinger, he was the the, uh, reformer of Zurich after Ulrich Zwingli, produced what was probably the longest confession in the Reformation, possibly in church history, the second Helvetic confession. And here is how he describes preaching in this confession. Notice the very strong language. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful and that neither any other word of God is to be invented, nor is to be expected from heaven, and that now the word itself which is preached is to be regarded, not the minister that preaches. For even if he be evil and a sinner, nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. like that last sentence in particular, because you know, when you come to church on a Sunday, you don't know what your minister's been getting up to during the week. I mean, you don't. You you laugh, but you don't. Many people sit in churches where the minister is later exposed as an adulterer, living a double life of some kind. Isn't it wonderful to have the confidence that what you hear doesn't depend upon him behaving himself during the week? It depends upon his fidelity to the word. And if you're a preacher, isn't it great? You know when you get up into the pulpit. You have no natural right. To proclaim these words to people you know what you've got up to during the week and yet you can have confidence the word is powerful because it does not depend upon you it depends upon the God who speaks so and brings us then back to preaching Preaching, as I've said, is more than transmission of information. If it was just transmission of information, there are other ways of doing it. We tend to think these days it's a new idea that, you know, well, preaching's passé because of the internet or because of YouTube or because of Twittering or something. Well, Samuel Johnson, 18th century British wit and prophet of blunt common sense, said this, People nowadays, he said, got a strange opinion that everything should be taught by lectures. Now, I cannot see that lectures can do so much as reading from books from which the lectures are taken. Johnson's point is simple. If information is what is sought, there are better means of getting it than sitting and listening to somebody else. Thus, if we regard the purpose of the sermon and of preaching as primarily communicating pieces of information about God and Jesus we will very soon come to realize that the task can be performed far more effectively by providing reading lists for the people. Or, given the fact that we are often told that people don't read as much as they did in the past, videos, dramatic presentations, group discussions. The Reformation, however, held that preaching is more than just transmission of information. It is rather the confrontation of the people with God as revealed in his word. Luther makes this point eloquently by stressing that salvation he uses this phrase numerous times, salvation is a word that comes from outside. It is not some kind of mystical experience which takes place in an inner private space and is incommunicable to others. But neither is it simply a case of learning about a state of affairs of the kind we see in the statements two plus two equals four or Napoleon died on St Helena. Such statements involve little or no existential relation of the individual uh, to the individual who hears them. To hear the death and resurrection of Christ proclaimed transforms the individual in terms of their own understanding of themselves and their relationship to God and the world. In other words, preaching is confrontational and transformative Its end cannot be achieved as well by, say, reading a mere book of theology or sermons, or even, one might add more provocatively, the Bible itself. The word proclaimed has profound significance beyond the word merely read or remembered. Not that the Lord hasn't saved people using all of those other means during history, but primarily, it seems, it's the preaching of the word that does it. The reasons for this are numerous and we need to understand them in order to understand what we are doing when we stand up and preach or when we sit and listen to a man preaching. First and foremost, there is the biblical teaching that God is the one who is present in and through his words. We see this right at the start of biblical history, when God speaks creation into being. His creative activity is described by Moses in Genesis 1 as that of speaking. There was nothing other than God. God spoke, then there was something else, the created realm. Further, just as God's speech inaugurated the first creation, so it is fundamental to the second, new creation. In Genesis 12, for example, God calls Abraham by addressing him in speech. Abraham is constituted as the recipient of the covenant, the father of the faithful, and the one through whose seed, the great seed and heir of the promise will come. There are covenant ceremonies that surround this call, of course. But the speech of God is central in establishing the relationship. Just as the words, I do, are crucial in the ceremony of marriage, whatever other ceremonies might be involved. I have to say, on today of all days amazing how much more interest in the royal wedding there is in America than there is back home. You, know, you guys fought a war just over 200 years ago to get rid of these people. Now you're sort of importing them all back on your, uh, on your TV screens. It's uh, quite, quite bizarre. I fled the country to get rid of them and I see more of them here than I did back home. But this kind of word emphasis continues throughout scripture. While it is, of course, true to say that God is always present everywhere, there is a presence of God which is, we might say, merely, to use the sort of pretentious philosophical word, merely ontological in supporting creation and providence. And a presence which is special, powerfully connected to his mighty acts of judgment and salvation. This latter presence is not ubiquitous as demonstrated by the fact that Scripture can actually talk of its absence. Thus Amos 8 verses 11 to 12 points to the absence of God as a sign of judgment against his people and articulates this absence not in, in terms of a famine, not of bread or water, but of the word of God. We might also point to other passages which hint at this same divine speech Uh, divine presence connection. For example, the desperate journey of the Shunammite to Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4 is surely connected to the fact that it is the prophet who brings the word of the Lord and who therefore embodies God's saving presence at that time in Israel's history. Thus she must go to him and indeed must fetch him back to touch her son. His staff in the hands of his servant will simply not suffice. Because the salvation of God comes by his word. And at this moment in history, the word of God, God's saving presence, comes only through the mouth of the prophet, not his assistant carrying some mute stick of wood. One could think also perhaps of Elijah on Carmel, the absence of Baal. Baal doesn't speak. Baal is silent. He was struck by the noise. On Mount Carmel, all these men making all of this noise all day long, and suddenly it falls silent. That God is absent. The theme continues in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 1, verse 10, we are told that when Jesus, I think I preached on this last time I was here, we are told that when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were torn open. Though sometimes translated simply as opened, this is not a good rendering. The only other time Mark uses the word is in Mark 15.38 with reference to the temple curtain. To translate this latter passage as the curtain opened would be a wholly inadequate and inaccurate description of the event. Yet there are more than just linguistic arguments internal to Mark's gospel to lead us to favour the translation torn open. It was apparently a commonplace of Second Temple Judaism that with the cessation of Old Testament prophecy, the Holy Spirit had stopped speaking directly to the people of God. And specific traditions relating to Isaiah 64.1 saw the tearing open of the heavens as the moment when the Spirit would descend upon the Messiah. Thus, when Mark describes Jesus' baptism in such terms, he is highlighting the fact that God is once again speaking to his people. Or we might say God is once again present with his people in the person of Jesus Christ in accordance with his great covenantal promise. And of course, the dramatic movement of the narrative at this point makes this clear. Since the tearing open of the skies is immediately followed by God the Father's verbal declaration and public commissioning of his Son. So words then, Crucially important for the saving presence of God in biblical history. Second point, in addition to speech being God's mode of presence, is the fact that God's word has been inscripturated. It's been written down in scripture. This is arguably a necessary part of the covenantal nature of God's plan of salvation. Covenants require words. And this goes a long way to explaining the continual emphasis on the writing down of words throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 30 verse 8, Jeremiah 30 verses 1 to 2, Daniel 9 verses 1 to 2, Habakkuk 2 verses 2 to 3. All refer either to the writing down of God's words, to a divine instruction to write God's words, or to the reading of God's words which had already been written down. The inscripturated word is thus a normal, a normative thing within the Old Testament. It defines God's relationship to his people. And when read aloud, can involve the reestablishment of the same. Second Kings chapter 23, Nehemiah chapter 8. You think of Deuteronomy, of course, the great sermon. The greatest sermon in scripture is Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy. And it defines the relationship between God and his people. And it's written down. This continues in the New Testament where the phrase, it is written, is frequently used, not least, of course, by the devil and by Christ as they trade blows in the wilderness. It is surely very significant that the battle between Christ and the devil in the desert, similar to the battle between Eve and the serpent in the garden, of course, is fought over the meaning of God's words. The assumption on both sides being that these are normative and binding. Further, the command to write down the words of God is, I hesitate to comment on the book of Revelation with my colleague Greg here, but the command to write down the words of God is found throughout the book of Revelation. one eleven. 119, 2-1, 2-8, 2-12, 2-18, 12 3-1, 14 10-4, 14-13, 19-9, and 21-5. They were just the ones I managed to pull out. There may be more. God's presence, God's speech, and God's word written are all intimately connected. The third point, in addition to God's word being spoken and written, is that God's word has also always been preached. As I say, the greatest example of this in the Old Testament is Moses, the paradigmatic prophet of ancient Israel. Like many subsequent preachers, Moses is acutely aware of his inadequacy for his task. When commissioned in Exodus 4, his lack of confidence leads the Lord to assure him that though it is he, Moses, who physically speaks, it will be the Lord who speaks through him. Later, his preaching forms part of his intermediary function between God and the people, when the latter are so terrified at Sinai that they beg Moses to speak to them on God's behalf. They don't want God to speak directly to them. What Moses is not doing at any point is merely communicating information from God to the people. His speeches are definitive of the relationship that exists between God and his people and are constitutive of that relationship as well. These points hold true throughout the Old Testament with the prophets being the other obvious examples. Their words do not simply explain the present or predict the future. They continually confront the Israelites with the identity of God as he has revealed himself to be in his dealings with the people. And therefore they reveal the people's own identity in relationship to God. And the moral demands these place upon the people. The unnamed prophet in Judges 6, 8 to 10 is a good example of this. He comes to remind an apostate people of who God is. The one who brought them out of bondage in Egypt, put their enemies to flight and gave them the promised land. And thus of who they are and what they are obliged to do not fear, in this case, the pagan gods of the land. In context, his word is not simply informational. Yes, it contains information, but it cannot be reduced to information. It stands as a sentence of condemnation, of guilty against the nation. It is also rooted, of course, in the word of God, as it has been written in the Torah, where the Exodus... And indeed, the consequences of syncretism were laid out in great detail. The prophet brings a word from the Lord here, which in a sense merely expounds and applies what has already been written to the current circumstances. The emphasis on preaching continues in the New Testament, whose key figures, John the Baptist, Stephen, Peter and Paul, to name just a few, along with, of course, Jesus Christ himself, a marked by their proclamation of the word. Stephen's sermon is particularly instructive, focusing on the identity of God, as he had revealed himself in his great acts of salvation in the Old Testament, as written down, and culminating in the work of Jesus Christ, a history which places such acute accusations and demands at the feet of the Jews, that they stone him on the spot. He's not just conveying information. It's not just a lecture from Stephen, they know. You can imagine as he's preaching, the colours beginning to rise, the pores are opening and they're starting to sweat. This isn't just information, it's a finger of accusation pointed right in their face. Further, in 1 Corinthians, Paul rejects the ancient and one might add, the modern obsession with aesthetics. And emphasizes that it is not the style of preaching, but what is preached, Christ crucified, that is vital. Of course, the King James Version famously misleads the reader by translating 1 Corinthians 1.21. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The text is better rendered, I think, by the English Standard Version. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, it is the content, not the method of delivery, which is Paul's concern here. Nevertheless, it does not seem to cross Paul's mind at this point that the content would not be preached. And this is entirely consistent with the emphasis upon verbal proclamation, which goes right back through the Old Testament. Indeed, the nature of the message, the proclamation of the cross... And the nature of the delivery, preaching, both seem to be closely connected to each other. There is, it seems, a fit between New Testament and Old Testament practice and the message which was to be communicated. Paul is really fulminating in some ways, I think in 1 Corinthians 1, against those who emphasize technique at the expense of everything else. It's hard to see how the identity of God in his action in Christ and in the church could be more adequately expressed than by the use of words. In fact, the sermons in Acts and in the epistles indicate that the prophetic model of Moses, exposition, application, exhortation, rooted in God's revelation, is the standard. And as this action is clearly connected to a theology of God as a speaking God, the preacher simply cannot see his task as mere communication of information. Again, Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians are apposite here, where he is keen to emphasize that the power of what he has preached is rooted not in his eloquence or impressive presence, both of which he denies. I always find it hard to imagine that it wasn't somewhat enthralling to hear Paul preach, but he does say he's not that impressive, certainly compared to the godlike individuals he seems to be opposing in Corinth. But the power lies rather in the demonstration of the Spirit. From a post-Nicene perspective with Trinitarian language at our disposal, we might say that what Paul is describing is a dynamic rooted in the nature of God. Preaching brings men and women to God the Father via the actions of His Son, crucified, resurrected and ascended by the power of His Holy Spirit through the medium of the message of the history of God and its significance being verbally communicated by preachers. The information communicated is merely instrumental to the realization of fellowship and communion with God, which are the real end of preaching. And that remains the task of the preacher today, just as it was for Paul, the realization of fellowship and communion with God. In sum, there is a close connection between the nature of God The nature of the Bible and the act of preaching. God's creative and recreative action is intimately connected to his speech. The Bible is his speech in written form. And preaching is both central to God's action within the pages of scripture itself and thus to the pattern of church life as established in the New Testament. The Bible as God's speech is a prophetic book. And the church as united to Christ is a prophetic Institution. This then brings us to the question of how one reflects this in one's preaching. In other words, how does one preach prophetically? The first thing necessary is surely a solid understanding of the task in terms of its broad theological contours and purpose as laid out above. The preacher must first understand what exactly he is doing in order to understand its basis, purpose, and limits. For only then can he be prophetic in terms of the confidence with which he speaks. If he thinks he's merely communicating information, he won't be able to distinguish what he's doing from giving a lecture. And he will become absorbed primarily with issues of technique, perhaps even abandoning the medium as less effective than others. Yet if he thinks preaching is merely exhortation to practical action, he will be incapable of distinguishing the teaching of moral principles from the preaching of the word. And may well, if he is honest, not really understand why the Bible is the best book for the task. And not say, one of Aesop's fables, or even the latest storyline from a television soap opera. It's very interesting to me that when theologians start recasting Christianity as, quotes a way of life. Often if they carry on in their theological careers and continue with that line of thinking, very soon they have difficulty in explaining, well, why is the Bible A unique book for that. There's plenty of other good books about how to live good lives. Whether Eastern books, mysticism, or American sort of self-help books. Plenty of other good books that can help you live a good life beyond the Bible. One would have to say that many of the moral examples in the Bible don't look too great at first examination. If what I've said above is correct, then basic to good prophetic preaching will be the understanding that God is a speaking God that is spoken definitively in Scripture and that he continues to speak through the faithful exposition of that Scripture today. Not that the preacher is preaching in a way that he's directly inspired, coming up with new revelation. But the preacher speaks God's words to the extent that those words are regulated and normed by God's definitive revelation in Scripture. If the preacher holds to these principles, he will have the confidence to do what he does every Sunday with authority safe in knowledge that the growth of the kingdom does not depend upon his eloquence but rather upon the action of the spirit using the words which the preacher himself has carefully prepared under the authority of the inscripturated word. That is not, by the way, to say that uh, a preacher should not be a good public speaker. John Chrysostom in the 4th century says that you know, there are three things that a pastor needs. Good grasp of doctrine doesn't need to care about his public reputation, but he needs to be able to speak coherently. If you can't string a decent English sentence together, you're not called to be a preacher. You have to be able to do that. What I'm saying here is that the power of your ministry will not ultimately depend upon your eloquence, but clearly you have to be able to speak in whole sentences to communicate to people. (laughs) Further, and by inference if I'm right, the current malaise in preaching must be seen as a crisis, not simply in the kind of cultural changes forged by the arrival of television, information technology and pragmatic educational methods, so ably analysed by T. David Gordon. But maybe the poverty of preaching might also be seen as a crisis in the doctrines of God and of Scripture. Two elements of Christian theology which are obviously intimately related. If God has not spoken in the past then there is no basis upon which to believe that he continues to speak through his revelation today. For this reason, it is crucial, I think, that theological education retains a central place for systematic theology. Far from being a speculative appendage to the task of ministry, systematic theology provides the basic definitions of God and his revelation that, understand, that undergird the understanding of Scripture and provide the theological foundations for understanding the task of the preacher. It's surely no coincidence that the current so-called hermeneutical crisis, indicated by the lack of confidence either in texts having meanings or in the ability of the human knower to discern such meaning, has coincided with a shift in many churches, away from preaching-centered ministries to -to one-to-one counseling, small group discussion, an accent upon conversational language. The cultural moment is not conducive to preaching. But then the cultural moment is not to determine what is and is not true. The Reformation did not place the reading and preaching of Scripture at the center because of the cultural momentum of the time. It did so because the God described in Scripture is a speaking God. If the act of preaching is driven by theological conviction rather than cultural preference and plausibility... Prophetic preaching can only be done effectively in the power of and confidence in the Spirit. Paul's anti-aesthetic tirade in his letters to the Corinthians should not be read as a blanket attack on good presentation, clear arguments and fine public speaking skills, all of which are helpful to the preacher and things greatly to be desired. Paul's point is rather that the Corinthians' mindset is so preoccupied with these things that they have lost sight of where the real power of God is to be found. Uh, Greg and I have a mutual friend Bruce Winter who's done a lot of work on the the social background in Corinth in the the first century numerous interesting things about the Corinthian church one of them is the culture was the public speakers they were the TV megastars of their day Bruce has dug up all of these letters about people complaining about the screams they would hear when the the orators would go and have their chests uh, stripped of hair so they look kind of smooth and cool when they, when they preach, and they would work out in the ancient equivalent of the gym. the orators were the, the Hollywood heroes of their day. one, well, if I was preaching, speaking on something else one could easily draw parallels with you know celebrity conversions always seem to get much higher profile than street sweeper conversions in the church there's an interesting uh, cultural issue there, but what I 'm saying here is we shouldn't underestimate. What's going on in Corinth? These are the Hollywood celebrities of their day that the Corinthians are looking to. And more importantly, they're judging Paul by that standard. And they're seeing that Paul's ministry must be weak. Probably he's got a bit of a paunch, he has got a hairy chest. He doesn't work out. All of these things that he fails by. All of these things indicate that his ministry lacks a certain power. But to return to the statement of the second Helvetic Confession, The word truly and legitimately preached is the word of God. We might hesitate to use quite such unequivocal language today. I think it's more problematic today. I think I know what Bullinger was trying to say today. His close identity perhaps is is expressed slightly problematically. But his underlying point is sound. Preaching carries a power which is ultimately divine in origin. The power does not inhere in the words themselves, but as those words are seized by God's Spirit and driven home into the hearts and minds of the hearers, that is what gives the preacher ultimate confidence in what he does. And that is what demands, and this is where it will pinch perhaps most of you sitting out there today, that is what demands that the congregation sit and listen. Testing all by Scripture, of course, but doing so with an attitude of humility and of those being addressed by one, by one who speaks for God himself. There is a difference, I think, between sitting and testing what the preacher says by Scripture from an attitude of suspicion that you're wanting to catch him out and an attitude of trust, where you've called this man. You trust him to expound the word faithfully. Yes, you check what he says in the same way that I check what the bank teller gives me when I go to take money out of the bank. I trust the bank teller, but maybe they'll make a mistake. There's a great difference in congregational attitudes to testing ministers by Scripture. Do you do it with an attitude of basic trust or an attitude of basic suspicion? I would say that the theology of preaching demands that unless you have very good reasons otherwise, you should basically listen with an attitude of what I would call critical trust, not critical suspicion. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 155, expresses it this way. How is the word made effectual in salvation? The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing and humbling sinners. Notice the existential language here of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image, subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. I have students every year tell me the Westminster Catechisms are boring. How can you read that and be bored? (laughs) The understanding of preaching is most significant it relativizes all questions of method and contextualization, not rendering them irrelevant, but rather of secondary importance. And it gives the preacher confidence to do what he does. For ultimately, the effectiveness of his ministry is not dependent upon his personal competence, inner moral qualities, or even his little dig at myself or my current audience in certain American contexts, his accent. I hope I still have an accent having lived here for 10 years. I I do dread going back home and being mistaken for an American at some point. Uh, It's pretty grim to say it, but uh, when you come to America as British, everybody kind of loves you. Or most people who haven't read Republicrat kind of love me. Um, But when Americans go to Britain, we're kind of rude and we don't reciprocate, I'm afraid. And that's not something I'm proud of. Second, if the post-apostolic preacher stands in a line which goes back through the New Testament to the prophets of the old then preaching should be prophetic in content. What I mean by this should be obvious by now. It should involve confronting the world in which the preacher finds himself with the word of God as written in the Bible. This imposes various demands upon the preacher. First, for preaching to be prophetic, God's word should have priority in defining exactly what is and is not relevant. Of course, preaching should address needs. But those needs themselves must first be defined by the word of God. In God's act of creation, his word was the creative force and thus had priority. Creation was got what God said it was to be. So in recreation, the speaking of God comes first, defining the problem and then providing an answer. That is the case in the Gospels. It continues to be the case today. By definition, therefore, prophetic preaching cannot be preaching that merely takes up the priorities and emphases of the world around us and seeks to find some means of applying God's word to such. This is not to deny the need for contextualization, you know, setting, being aware of your audience, the context in which you're speaking. Though it is to argue that contextualization can be a much overused and much overhyped term. At one level, It merely states the obvious. For example, preaching should be done in a way that takes account of the context. Thus one does not preach in Urdu to a congregation made up of those who only speak English. And it's well worth avoiding the kind of gaffe described by Luther in the following quotation from his table talk. I am incapable of talking for more than 41 minutes without mentioning Luther at some point. (laughs) He says this, One should preach about things that are suited to a given place and given persons. A preacher once preached that it's wicked for a woman to have a wet nurse for her child. And he devoted his whole sermon to a treatment of this matter. Although he had nothing but poor old spinning women in his parish, to whom such an admonition no longer applied. (laughs) Similar was the preacher who gave an exhortation in praise of marriage when he preached in an old woman's infirmary. End quotation such is clearly a case where a little bit of contextualization might well have had considerable benefit yet recent decades with their preoccupations with diversity difference and various movements characterized as postmodern have seen a veritable explosion in the contextualization industry thus at another level the overcomplication of matters of contextualizing can actually end up inverting the proper order of christian thinking by placing the diversity of human context as the grid through which the word of God is to be interpreted rather than vice versa. The preacher must remember that the ultimate context of the world is the word of God and that the problems of humanity as defined by that word, alienation from God, rebellion against his rule, are the same all over the world, regardless of the way, in which these might find specific manifestations in any given situation. One would presume that Luther would have regarded his anonymous preacher as just as incompetent if all he had done was describe the life of a poor spinning woman to his audience of poor spinning women. There has to be confrontation. Given the contemporary world's obsessions, of course, we are unlikely to be dealing with spinning women or wet nurses on a regular basis. But we have our own set of cultural fetishes. The words of Albert Moller are apposite on this point. He says this, The rise of therapeutic concerns within the culture means that many pastors and many of their church members believe that the pastoral calling is best understood as a, quote, helping profession, end quotes. As such, the pastor is seen as someone who functions in a therapeutic role in which theology is often seen as more of a problem than a solution. End quotation. Theology is often seen as more of a problem than a solution. The shift in understanding of the pastor's role to which Mola refers is part of the general shift from allowing the word to set the agenda rather than the world. Doctrine can only become part of the problem when the world becomes the context for understanding the word. When our questions and problems become the dominant theme of our thinking and when we thus judge relevance by our own autonomous psychological or sociological criteria. I'm going to miss out a bit of my talk, uh, talk here because uh, there's a good example from Scripture about relevance. I, mean, I don't know if I've, if I've said this here before. Second thief on the cross. Go back to, If you go to the Gospel of Luke and look at the second thief on the cross second thief on the cross is often in church history. People like Erasmus, I'm going to talk about tomorrow, uh, regarded the second thief as having just a sort of very minimal theology. And he's used as an example of somebody, you know, right at the very end, he just had this kind of nebulous trust in God. And Jesus said, it's okay, son, it'll be all right. I'll be with you in paradise. If you actually look at what the second thief says, he talks about uh, the holiness of God. His mind is focused upon the second death, not the first death. He's hanging on a cross, and he rebukes the other thief by saying, come on, man, we're dying on a cross. But we're about to fall into the hands. But God is a consuming fire. He also acknowledges that he deserves to be hanging on a cross. Quite remarkable. The first thief is, you know, Jesus, get me down from the cross. second thief is quite remarkable. He says, you know, we're hanging here because we deserve it. And then, interestingly enough, he points to Jesus and he said, but this man has done nothing wrong. Not sure that we can extrapolate from that to saying he, he has a full understanding of who Jesus is and uh, his, his sinlessness, but he certainly understands the qualitative difference between his death and Jesus' death. And then, finally, the most amazing thing he says, of course, is, you know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. First thief, the religious rulers, the the, the, the soldiers, have all goaded Jesus with this. If you're the king, you say you are, come on down from the cross. Demonstrate you're the king by avoiding death. Second thief says, when you come into your kingdom, when you're crowned as king, remember me. Nothing about coming down from the cross. The second thief seems to understand that the kingdom, the crown is to come through the death. Now why is that relevant to what I'm saying here? When did, this, when did when this guy teach this? When, when did this guy learn this? Now, the scripture being quoted, we see as, as Jesus is being led to Golgotha. But even the scriptures that's been quoted, if the thief had no context, he wouldn't have been able to make much of it. My guess is the, the second thief was taught this stuff when he was small. He heard it preached or taught in the local synagogue. Next question you've got to ask yourself is well, how relevant was it to him? Well, the answer is it wasn't really relevant at all. You can imagine his mother, maybe his mother was still alive, and you can see her sitting somewhere, knowing that her son is, is being executed that day and crying and thinking all of those, all of that attendance at the synagogue, all of those Bible readings we had with him, none of it had any effect. It was all irrelevant to him. He went off and, you know, he became a real rat back. You say he's a thief, but more than likely, he probably killed a Roman soldier or something. He, he committed some pretty heinous crime of rebellion to be crucified. Even he says, you know, I'm hanging here because I deserve it. So what he was taught by the criteria of his life was utterly irrelevant. Except for the one moment when it was the only relevant thing he'd ever been taught. Nothing else he'd ever heard in his entire life was any relevance whatsoever to him as he hung on the cross. Except for his basic training in Old Testament theology that he must have received at some point. And I think that's a salutary lesson to preachers about judging what is relevant. And I think it is a salutary and an encouraging lesson to parents about teaching our kids. We cannot judge the impact of what we have taught until it's all over, until the final curtain comes down. What is relevant? I'll tell you what's relevant. Preparing people to die. That is the ultimately the only really relevant thing that a pastor does. Everything else may have passing relevance, But the only thing of eternal relevance is preparing somebody to die. And I think if you hold that in your mind, that will uh, give you a, a sober assessment of what is and is not relevant. Next further task, as we talked about preaching should be relevant and relevant should be determined by the word, we should also say that a further mark of prophetic preaching, and this sounds a bit prosaic, but it should not be boring. The truths of God's holiness, humanity's sin, the cross of Christ might be good news to some or horribly offensive to others. But they should never be boring. That so many sermons inspire little but tedium in congregations is highly suggestive that their content might not be all that it should be. Don't often quote Karl Barth positively. Here's a great quotation from Karl Barth on preaching. He says this, Preachers must not be boring. To a large extent, the pastor and boredom are synonymous concepts. Listeners often think that they have heard already what is being said in the pulpit. They have long since known it themselves. The fault does not lie with them alone. Against boredom, and this is very interesting from Bart here, against boredom, the only defence is to be biblical. If a sermon is biblical, it will not be boring. Holy Scripture is in fact so interesting and has so much that is new and exciting to tell us that listeners cannot even think about dropping off to sleep. Isn't that interesting? I sometimes think, maybe we just get, we're always thinking, we're not familiar enough with the Bible, but maybe sometimes we're too familiar with it. We think we know what's coming next. I remember hearing a preacher, he's moved from the Philadelphia area, he's church planting in, I think he's Nebraska now, best preacher I ever heard. And I used to say to my wife when he'd hear him preach, I'd come away and say, you know, I feel as if I've, he preached on a familiar passage. I feel I never read that passage before in my life. It's as if I'd never seen that passage before in my life. Bart calls it the strange new world of the Bible. Preaching should not be boring. Note what Bart does not say. He does not say that the answer to the boredom of the congregation is to make the presentation more interesting by telling jokes, anecdotes, or exciting stories. No, the way to make the sermon more interesting is to be biblical. I'm no fan of Bart's theology, but I wonder who, on this point, is more faithful to the biblical notion of preaching. The evangelical Protestant who spends the first 10 minutes of every sermon entertaining his flock. Or the man who says that interest is generated by putting more, not less, Bible into what you say. Finally, to be prophetic, preachers need to communicate to their people that preaching is not simply communication of information, this is where I started, or exhortation to action but involves the very presence of God in and through his words. Wouldn't we be more excited about going to church if we thought that there we were going to meet with God in a special way? Wouldn't we be more frightened about not bothering to go to church if we thought that God was going to be specially present there and we were to be absent? The Dutch theologians J. Van Genderen and H.J. Vellemer, they've written this great book. It's called A Concise Reform Dogmatics. It's a thousand pages long. You can imagine what a non-concise Dutch Reformed theology must look like. Concise Reformed theology. Why would I go to church, they ask? One of the answers to this question, given by Van Ruler, another Dutch theologian, although in his view it is not the most important one, is that we go there to receive salvation in all of its forms and variations. The mediation of salvation of Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But the Spirit engages helpers. In a sermon, God in Christ comes up to us with his grace. When I have to some extent discovered myself to be a sinner, as being lost and in the wrong, it is hard to believe that there is mercy for me. Preaching continually opens up new vistas. The Spirit is enriched and the heart is filled. Those who have once truly tasted something of the mystery of redemption seek to hear the gospel over and over again. In quotation. Sometimes get students at Westminster come to my office and I say, oh, Dr. Truman, I'm struggling with my faith, I lack assurance, da-dum, 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 or I'm struggling with this sin. My first question is always, how's church going at the moment? And if they say to me, well, I haven't been there for four weeks, I click into my most pastorally sensitive mode and I say, well, clear off. Get yourself back to church, go there for four weeks, and if you've still got a problem, come back and talk to me then. But I can't counsel you if you're not even doing the basics. It's like somebody coming to you and saying, I'm really, really hungry. I'm starving. Well, have you eaten recently? No. (laughs) Go and eat. And if you're still hungry after you've eaten, then maybe there's a medical condition. Maybe you need specialist care. (laughs) Those who come to church with the thought that they are to meet God there in the reading and preaching of his word will have a very different attitude to those who come seeking a theological lecture or moral exhortation. They will come to listen, to worship, and to respond. They will come to church in order to be the church, the body of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. Here's perhaps a fitting end uh, to a lecture, to, uh, particularly not exactly from my homeland, he's a Scotsman, but he spent much of his teaching career in England quote from a great British theologian, Peter Taylor Forsyth, who wrote what I think is the greatest book on preaching in the history of the church, positive preaching and the modern mind. P.T. Forsyth begins that book with the following statement. He says this, it is perhaps an overbold beginning, but I will venture to say that with its preaching, Christianity stands or falls, end quote. Given all that I've said above, that preaching is prophetic, that it connects to the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Scripture, that it is God's means of action and presence in the church, that it is not explaining the Bible or simply encouraging people to behave better, I think it is not an overbold ending to say that only as individual churches and denominations address both their understanding of preaching and its content, they cannot stand but will most certainly fall So let us focus once again on the education and training, not of therapists, life coaches, and general managers, but of preachers, those tasked with bringing us the living Word of God. Thank you for listening.
0: Amen. That was a good word from uh, Dr. Carl Truman. Lord, we... (laughs) Lord, we need more pastors to preach. We need more preachers in the church. We need guys who will give us that, you know, the the con- confrontational proclamation of your word. And Lord, please get rid of these self-help gurus and moralizers and rock stars. We just we need guys who will proclaim the truth. Ah, Amen. All right. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you. We truly do depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. We're a little more than 25% of the way to our goal of 350 new uh, crew members uh, for the month of May. If you're not already a member of our crew, we truly do need your help and to, for you to join our crew. Join our crew by visiting our website, Fighting for the faith. Com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. The one that says, Join Our Crew is the one you want to click on. It. Uh, when you do that, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. When you do that, I'll send you a copy of our new book, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. And as, uh, as a crew member, you also uh, have the ability, you are entitled to uh, get a limited edition Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt for uh, a discounted price. Uh, visit uh, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale uh, for the information on uh, our limited edition T-shirt that I designed. I'm silk screening on my YouTube. I'm doing the fulfillment on this. This is our bake sale to help us uh, meet budget. So, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution or specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. So, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. You can email me uh, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till next week, yeah, the rapture's not happening tomorrow. Uh, till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.